And as we read, remember that we're reading God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's God's word. You may be seated. Quick intro. My name is Josh. I'm the director of students here, um, which is 6th through 12th grade. Woo, yeah. Nice. Wow. Um, just a quick little announcement because I was at uh, one family's house and the parents were like, so... We hear this event coming up. We're going to play broom ball. It's on ice. It's kind of like hockey without skates. And our kids told us, you said no girls are allowed to come. So somewhere between my speaking and the students getting in the cars and driving home, something's always lost. So just broom ball coming up. All kids are invited. I promise girls, boys, 6th through 12th graders, bring it out. And tough 5th graders. If you're tough, 5th grade, you can come. 6th through 12th, come. The other thing, Christmas party, I've had a few moms email me. So what's the deal with Christmas party? What's going on? Next Wednesday, this Wednesday coming up, the 12th, our Christmas party. It's an ugly sweater for the leaders, not the kids. The kids bring a white elephant gift. Have a good time. Is that simple enough? Don't spend more than $10. Parents, we good? Thumbs up. We understand. Students are like, uh, so no girls at the Christmas party? <laughs> yes, that's what I said. Um, for those of you, this is your first time, we're in Peter. Peter got put on pause because we had a death of an elder here a couple weeks ago. So uh, Luke took a break and just spoke on Charlie Jolly's life. That being said, I was supposed to preach this message last week. So Saturday I get a call from Luke and he says, I just want to let you know Charlie went home to be with the Lord. Um, and I'm in the middle of preparing for this message on suffering. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And that day was just a good, like, take a step back, take a big picture look at my life, and just kind of reevaluate. Because that night I was bathing my youngest son, a little Roman, and I'm just looking at this little five-month-old baby, thinking of Charlie, who I went to his funeral, and I was taking notes, because the man lived such an awesome life. Here's how I can be a better husband. His little program, and I'm taking notes. How am I going to prepare little Elijah, little Roman, to die well like Charlie? We, want, we all want to die well. We all want to have a funeral. People taking notes to go and live their life better. Is that a good goal? My goodness. So today, I think one of the biggest things we need to deal with in life is suffering. What's your theology of suffering? If you're a good Calvinist like myself, you say God's in control of everything. Yes, but in light of your theology, how are you practically going to live through suffering? What are you going to teach your kid about suffering? What's some easy things you can transfer on to the next generation regarding suffering? 
Luke blogs, and he had a great blog, I don't know, a month ago about manhood. And in his blog, he made the point, I've never really been able to transfer what I thought manhood was supposed to be until I went to this conference. And he taught me that authentic manhood is to reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and invest internally. Is that easy to remember, easy to pass on, easy to transfer? Absolutely. That's what I hope to have today. How do we suffer well as Christians? We all suffer, right? We're all, some of us are in the midst of suffering. Some of us are preparing to suffer very soon. Some of us have been in a long season of suffering. Suffering gets us all. I think Mary Tyler Moore said, we don't leave this world without scars. We all got them. We all got to suffer. The question is, how are we going to do it? So that's what this passage lays it out beautifully. Um, I want to show you why this is such an easy passage to preach. Back in the beginning of Peter, Luke preached on this passage. So this is my Bible. I just took a picture of my phone. But here's how I read through the Bible. If it's a promise from God, I underline it in red, telling myself, stop, take note, God just promised you something. If it's something I'm supposed to get up and go do, I underline it in green. Red, stop, let it sink in. Green, go, do this. So beginning of Peter is just promise, 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 promise. How awesome is God? Look at the salvation. You're kept. It's an unfading salvation. Glorious, glorious truths. Red, 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 red. And then fast forward to the passage I have to preach today. Sorry, that's not a great picture, but there's four greens and one little sliver of red in the middle. So we've got four go do this one red, stop, take note. So this is easy. we got four things to do. Peter says in the midst of suffering, you're supposed to expect it. You're supposed to exult in it. He actually says rejoice, but rejoice doesn't start with an E, so I exult in it. <laughs> I feel like I can celebrate. Same thing, exult. You're supposed to examine it, and I'll hang out there for a while because that's where I failed big time. And lastly, you're supposed to entrust your soul to God through it. We all following four steps. We got it? Let's, let me read this first part. Verse 12 here. First thing Peter would have us to do. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. First thing he says is expect suffering. As a teacher, as a youth pastor, I see lots of parents who want to set up this life for their kid that is void of any suffering. So if the kid's kind of a band kid and not good at sports, we just keep him away from all athletic events so he never has to feel like he's bad at something. If he's a jock, just stick him in all the sports so he's awesome at everything. And then we have this generation of kids who are really awesome at these few things but can't relate in the weakness to other people. Does that make sense? Uh, People would call this sort of thinking prosperity theology, where you're supposed to live a life where suffering should never happen. Raise your hand if you've heard that prosperity theology. <clears throat> if you watch any religious TV, a lot of it is prosperity theology. And the theology basically is, instead of expecting suffering, your life should be one marked by expecting prosperity in all things. And if you're not prospering, if you're not healthy, wealthy, wonderful, and delightful, something's wrong. Peter says you're supposed to expect suffering. It's coming. 
There's a fiery trial. In this context, he's talking to Christians who were living during Nero's time. Nero apparently set the city on fire and then blamed the Christians. And then everyone's going to be totally hot with the Christians. And he's saying, this fiery trial is coming. Expect it. Does that make sense? I've got this one gal at school who's always asking me religious questions. I feel like God's working in her. I don't really know, but she, she comes to me with like a new issue every day. She says, Mr. Wad, I've got an issue. Have you read Job? I said, yes. That's horrible. What's horrible? Job. What about Job? All he did was suffer. I said, what's wrong with that? She's like, that, suffering? That's horrible. I'm like, well, what do you think the end goal of man is? Just to be happy? Because I would disagree. I would think God's in the process of making him more like him. And I think God tends to agree with me or vice versa. And those are two pretty lofty opinions there. So maybe your starting assumption is wrong. (laughs) Maybe we're not here to be as happy as possible for our short stint on earth. But maybe we're in the process of being formed and pruned and made into the image of God. Expect suffering because that's God's tool in our holiness. Um. I got to listen to one of the other campuses preach on this because we're behind. So, and I'll just steal this from him. <laughs> Tom Schrader over at the Gilbert campus preached on this. And he said, back in the day I was reading this book, Promises of God. And I read through and I realized this guy forgot some of the promises. So let me help him out. So these are some of the promises of God that don't make it into the prosperity theology. Here's the first one. Second Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Doesn't make it into a lot of sermons. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You want to be godly, you're going to be persecuted. Period. Promise. Take it to the bank. Next one. For it has been, I love this one. I listen to Philippians on CD on my way to work, so I hear this. And when I read it, I hear the guy's voice. I've heard this verse so many times, and it's, it's just a beautiful reminder. For it has been granted to you to not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul's saying, God ordained that you would believe in him, at the same time he also planned that you would suffer. That's hard to hear, but we're supposed to expect it. Last one, Romans 8. This is a great, Romans 8 should be read weekly. For we know that the whole creation, so now Paul's talking about the whole world knows something's up. This just ain't right. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Translation, there's something wrong with this world. Everybody knows it. We're all groaning about it. Christians expect to suffer. Make sense? Now, as I've thought through this message, I've thought, what if people leave out some of these things or stop? So what if your manual on suffering just has step one, expect it, end of manual? What kind of Christian would that produce? And I've come to two end conclusions. <laughs> Who is this guy? I'm just smoking around. My life. 
How many of you guys tend towards just negative Nancy's, pessimistic, woe is me? You're going to be that guy if all you do is expect suffering without any other steps following. That guy. You don't want to be that guy. This guy. Anybody know who this guy is? Anybody know his name? Terry Jones. He's a pastor in Florida who was made famous by burning Korans and getting the Muslim folks in the Middle East super angry with America. So he's a preacher at some church, some outreach center, and his big thing is the message of Christ is offensive, so I'm going to maximize my offensiveness. He's expecting suffering. He knows people are not going to like it. He doesn't care. Suffering, persecution, Jesus being ridiculed as part of his theology. He knows it, but he stops there, and he never stops to think, maybe there's a nicer way to go about this. Maybe I don't have to light their holy book on fire to get their attention. So those are the two extremes, either moping around, my life is horrible, or I'm going to be so offensive because this world is a fight for Christianity. Could this guy be saved? Possibly. But his theology of persecution and what it means to suffer for Christ's sake is so off base, it's ridiculous. Which one are you? Unfortunately, I'm like a nicer version of him more often times than I want to admit. Christ is offensive. It's okay if I'm offensive once in a while. No, no, no. Christ was all grace, all truth, all the time. We fall in step one. Expect it. It's going to happen. Step two. What's the next step? Exalt in Christ. Here's how Peter says it. Go down to verse 13. We'll read through 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's he saying here? Rejoice, celebrate, exalt, get happy about your suffering. You are now in the midst of suffering. How are you to respond? You're supposed to be happy, joyful, and celebrating. Why? Peter says, because you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Other translations, I think, say a little better, but rejoice to the extent that your sufferings are related to Christ. Meaning, rejoice to the degree that your sufferings are the same sufferings that Christ went through. Christ came to save a lost world. You are going to help save a lost world. If you're suffering in that, praise the Lord. Amen? If you are suffering because you have a message that might be offensive, but you're saying it with love and gentleness and joy and peace and kindness, and you're still suffering for it, rejoice. You don't have to back down. You rejoice. I had a great illustration of this. Any country music fans? Woo! It's a guy, Eric Church, he sings, Springsteen. You guys know it? It's a good song. But he got into a lot of trouble recently because he basically bagged on the queens of country, Carrie Underwood and Miranda Lambert. You guys know them? Come on, listen to some good music. Here was his point. Eric Church became a country music star by starting in some lonely bars, working his way through the circuit, and then he made it big. Carrie Underwood went on American Idol, 
saying, and now she's famous. Miranda Lambert went on Nashville's Biggest Star, took like second or third place, and now she's a big star. And his point is, being a country music star is more than just getting on stage and having people clap. There's a process involved. You got to go through the grind to get to the top. And this is what Peter's saying. You rejoice because you're going through the same grind that Jesus had to go through to get to the glory that he now enjoys. Does that make sense? you got to go through the grind. You've got to share in the same sort of sufferings as Jesus for you to be able to rejoice when his glory is revealed. Christianity is not American Idol. Oh, look at me, how awesome I am. Live a wonderful life and ship off to heaven. It's God, I'm a sinner, I'm here to follow you, whatever that means. It means even though you want a child more than anything, that might not happen. It means your spouse might not share the same beliefs. It means when you go to work and you're excited and joyful about Christ, people aren't going to feel the same. Is that Christianity? Teaching youth, I always try to remind our high school students, you're not going to go, like, we try to create a fun environment in youth ministry, but as you go out, people are not going to want to hear what you have to say. It's tough. It's a grind. Jesus says, rejoice, because you're sharing in the same sufferings as your Savior. You are partaking in his sufferings. There's a pastor I really like who's now deceased. I don't know if any of you guys know him, but I like him. He said something along these lines. So, Larry, if this is not exactly what you said, I apologize. But this is how I remember it. He got saved late in life. He was a radio DJ here in the Valley. Got saved. He was just a drunk, horrible husband, horrible dad, horrible everything. Got saved. God turned him into a preacher, and he preached the last half of his life. With arthritis, he would, his hands all crippled. I remember sitting in it. He would preach like this. He lost his use of his hands. He had suffered. He had every sort of ailment and illness. And towards the end of his life, this is what he told a church. I will be obedient to rejoice in my temporary sufferings because I know that my sufferings are only as temporary as my disobedient prospering. Meaning, I'm going to rejoice because I know that this is passing. Just like if I was to leave Christ aside and live a prosperous, wonderful life apart from the sufferings of Christ, that would be just as short and just as quick and just as passing. It doesn't feel that way all the time, but that's the reality. Corinthians says, this light, momentary affliction, when he talks about sufferings. It's light. It's momentary. It's affliction, yes, but it's light and momentary. It's like a fly landing on us and then flying away. Nobody likes that guy on you, but he's going to be gone in a second. You're going to forget about it, and you're going to move on with your life. The grand scheme of life, that's what the worst of sufferings offers to us. It's like a fly landing on us and then flying away. And then when the glory is to be revealed, the crushing weight of God's glory and joy and prosperity for us for eternity is going to be here. That's hard to, that's hard to think about that. Because this fly feels like an elephant a lot of times. But it's light and it's momentary. Here, what if we stop here? We expect, we rejoice, we celebrate. What if we just expected and then we're really good at celebrating in our sufferings? 
What sort of Christians would that leave? I don't have any cute pictures for this. But I'd picture an unsanctified worshiper. Somebody who raises their hands, praises God, but in the day-to-day grind of life never stops to examine why they are going through the suffering they're going through. Really good at doing this. Really horrible at getting on their knees and asking God to change them. If you expect it and you praise God in it, you're missing a whole lot of stuff that God can do through this. So that leads us to our third step. Step three. And this is the most convicting. I wish God would have took me through this a long time ago, but he allowed me to be an idiot for a lot of my life. Step three is examine the cause. Let's go to this next verse. But let, of, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here's how I kind of break it down to make it easy. As we examine the suffering, what is it that's causing the suffering? Because if you never stop to examine, you're going to be praising God in the midst of your sin a lot of times. So I've broken it down to four categories. You can disagree. They all start with the same letter, so they're perfect. <laughs> what is causing your suffering? The first one is maybe you're suffering just because you're in sin. Like your husband not, might not be a believer, but your marriage may be struggling because you're just being a nag, not because he doesn't love Jesus. And for me... I love to evangelize, and I've got a math degree, so I love to think, and I love to prove people wrong. Put those all into the same person, and you have issues because you've got a guy going telling people about Jesus who loves them so much by making them feel stupid and how they're thinking. So I would just dismantle people. Let me show you ten ways on how stupid your idea is. Number one. Number two. By the way, Jesus loves you. But it could just be sin, right? Our suffering could be sin. In high school relationships, a lot of your issue might just be sin. You're not a martyr. You're a knucklehead. (laughs) Next one. Could be a stewardship issue. Not necessarily sin and deep, unrepentant darkness in your heart, but just you've never been taught the proper way to go about things. With money. A lot of us don't have dads who teach us how to use money. It's a stewardship issue. We need someone to come alongside. Here's how this works. Could there be sin beneath the stewardship? Obviously. But a lot of it's just a stewardship issue. I'll throw this one in there. Charlie's uh, funeral, Luke said, in Charlie's office, there's a John Wayne quote. Life is hard. It's really hard when you're stupid. My wife dealt with this the other day. I got a call, not her stupidity. I was teaching. She called. There was a hint of emotion in her voice. There's paint everywhere. Like, yikes. So I had painted the gate the previous day, exterior gate, and I had left the gallon of paint there, and I just set the can on top, and I was like, I need to go get a hammer and nail this thing down. I'll do it some other time. I want some chocolate milk. (laughs) So I left it there. 
Aubrey's routine is wake up Elijah, give him eggs, give him ham, whatever, send him outside. She goes out after like half an hour, and he had covered our backyard with paint. Our furniture, he had just found this stick. And, was <laughs> and she is just not happy. <laughs> she is clearly suffering for my stupidity. You need to think through, are you just being stupid? It happens. Last one would be, you're actually suffering. Suffering kind of two buckets to think about. Life suffering, just the grind of life, health fading, relationships, or the suffering that Peter's kind of magnifying here, the suffering for Jesus' sake. Because of your faith, you're suffering for it. You need to think through that, or you're going to be doing this when you should be on your knees repenting of how you're acting. Step three is you've got to examine. We good on all that? Let me just read that verse, the end of that verse one more time. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let him not be ashamed. Implication, if it is sin, you should feel shame. I became a Christian around 18. Um, I was a knucklehead teenager. I used to steal and just do dumb things. And right around the time I got saved, a police officer was nice enough to take me home one day from a store that I had went to. In the back seat, and my dad's outside with all his buddies. Get out of the back. My dad gets in my face. You are supposed to be a Christian. That's all he said. Broke me. Shame and guilt that I should have felt because I was in the wrong. You need to examine your suffering. It's not always going to be your fault. Sometimes God is just putting you through a hard season. But you've got to examine it. Uh, just a, You need people in this. About a, about a month ago or so, I was going through a pretty tough season, just feeling heavy and dark. And called Luke and said, hey, man, I'm dealing with this. I think it's probably your fault, Luke. Can you change the way you do some stuff? He said, well, let's think through this. Back and forth, back and forth. And he sent me this email, and I'm reading through it, and he says, I'm really sorry for this. Maybe it's this, like just in passing. Maybe it's a lack of, you know, sound relationships in your life. And like the biggest burden was lifted off me. That was it. I was just on the go, go, go. Wasn't stopping to enjoy people ever. Luke, in my life, lovingly got to reveal that. You're not going to reveal much of this on your own. You need to be with people. You need to be in community. You need to be in a redemption community. You need to be in a class. You need to be with people. Otherwise, you're never going to get to the heart of the issue. Because if it is suffering, you need people to come alongside and weep with you. Because that's what the Bible says. Okay? This next part is a little, a little tricky passage here. So let's read it, and then I'll try to unpack it the best I can. Verse 17. So this is in the examining part. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here's the question I would ask. Why is God causing or allowing Suffering for a Christian. Old Testament, we, we preached through Daniel and Joseph a while back. Daniel 
was in captivity. We kind of remember this. He was sent away to a foreign land, lived kind of a, a noble life, but the rest of the Jews were in captivity. They were kind of these people's slaves. Ezekiel is in that same boat. He got taken away into captivity. And Ezekiel, there's a wonderful passage in Ezekiel 9. Uh, let me set it up. Israel's in sin. That's why captivity came. God's punishing them. They're, they're idolaters. So God's saying, how am I going to deal with this? I'm going to use these Babylonians to come in, take you away, and hopefully melt your hearts back towards me. And he's trying to cleanse Israel. And here's what he says in Ezekiel 9, 6 through 7. He's saying, go through all Israel, put marks on the people who are actually repentant of their sin and feel guilt and shame for how they're acting. And don't put any mark on the people who don't look that way. And then he says, and then go destroy them. All those. And he says, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Point being, God is in the process of cleansing a people. God is in the process of renewing the world, which means removing sin. And the people he's going to start with are Christians. The judgment of the Christians has begun. Not punitive, not you're being paid back for your sins. Judgment meaning refining. God's changing. God's fixing. God's changing your priorities. Augustine says our loves are not rightly ordered. And God is reordering what we love in this world. I thought this was super pertinent, but in Washington, I don't know when it was, two days ago, they passed same-sex marriage and legalization of marijuana recreationally. And there's a pastor there that a lot of us like, Mark Driscoll, some of you may know him, but he's, he wrote a book, and I was reading this book on what he thought of marijuana. And this is a verse, uh, passage out of his little book that I thought was very pertinent to the discussion here about what God's doing with this. Here's what he has to say. As a pastor, I've noticed that people tend to stop maturing when they start self-medicating. Everyone has very tough seasons in life, but by persevering through them, we have an opportunity to mature and grow as people. Those who self-medicate with drugs and or alcohol, as well as other things, often thwart maturity as they escape the tough seasons of life rather than face them. This explains why some people can be biologically much older than they are emotionally and spiritually. God's suffering is not a punishment for the Christian. He's refining us. He's starting with the household of God, and he's changing us, and he's fixing us. We're broken. That's what made us Christians in the first place. We said, God, I'm broken. I need you. Okay, now let's begin this process. My wife, Aubrey, I love dearly. She's kind of random sometimes. She, like, gets on this kick. But I, I came home the other day, and there was just tree branches everywhere. I've got, like, three citrus trees, and she just hacked the heck out of all of them. She's like, I went on YouTube, and I figured out how to prune. I'm like, all right. Okay, explain. So, she walks me through the step. You want to get it right at the knuckle, so right where it meets, and you want to chop it off. And if you got any branches that are doing this, you want to chop that off. If you got any branches that aren't exactly like they're supposed to be, you need to chop them off. Where I thought pruning was like the little random guys on top, you just chop those off so the tree looked cute. But she completely demolished our lemon tree. 
She's pruning. Because according to the experts in the pruning field, that's what's best for the tree. And according to God, what's best for us Christians in a lot of seasons of life is suffering. Because he's pruning us. He's saying, that's not quite right, so I'm going to take that. And that, that shouldn't, that's ordered wrong. And he puts us through suffering because he loves us. And he wants us to blossom and be fruitful and be joyful. But he needs to chop away. He starts with the household of God. Just a quick little note. A little scary verse here. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Peter's asking a rhetorical question. If being a Christian and being formed in the likeness of Christ is painful and difficult and often requires suffering, how bad is it going to be for those who reject this truth in this life? This isn't a, a turn or burn message, but he's being very clear. Being a Christian, you're not going to be a Christian because there's prosperity in it. Although I became a Christian because I think God has wonderful things in store for me. But being a Christian is going to involve suffering. But for those of you who reject this, it's going to require a lot more of you. Your soul for eternity. Your bodily punishment for eternity. Let that sink in a little bit. In youth, the other day, I had all the students get down on their knees. Because in Philippians, he says, one day every knee is going to bow before God. One day, we're all going to be on our faces before God. Some of us are going to be smiling. Some of us are going to be dreading it. What will happen to the ungodly and sinner? Last step, and this one's mainly for Christians. Because you non-Christians haven't got to the point where you trust in him. But step four is expect... Exalt, examine, and lastly it says to entrust. Let me read this last verse here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. So you've made it through the examining process. You're doing it like God would want you to be doing it. What are you supposed to do? You entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Two things I think we need to know to be true to be able to fully trust in our capability in the midst of suffering. One thing we need to believe and one thing we need to know is a a flat-out lie. The thing we need to believe is that God is really in it for our good. All things work together for the good of those who love God. You need to trust that in the suffering, God has your good intentions on the forefront of his mind. Is that hard to think sometimes? I have a two-year-old. I'm like, what is this, purgatory? (laughs) He really has your best intentions. And the thing that we need to kick out of our mind, kick out of our heart, you are not suffering. You're not going through what you're going through as punishment, Christian. Discipline, yes, but the wrathful punishment of God has been paid. Amen? Amen? He is not punishing you. I work with a gal who is just Catholic to the bone, and she's going to retire, and she's like, and then I'm going to go work at a Catholic school to earn a few more points before I die. Because her life is a series of transactions. Good, good, good. Oh, no, I lied. I need more good, good, good. God's punishing me. That's taking away some of my past sin. This isn't a transaction deal. 
And trust is an economic term. It means to give everything to God. Why do we give everything to God and trust him wholly? There's only one other time this word entrust is used in the entire Bible. Jesus, his last breath, God, I entrust you with my soul. Jesus lived the life that we fail to live. He hung on the cross we should have hung on. He bled the blood we should have bled for our sins. And at the end of it all, he says, God, I trust you. And as the Christian who suffers, we need to remember that all of our punishment is on him. Praise God. And the suffering is for our good. It's horrible truth, but it's true and it's really for our good. You're suffering for a reason, Christian. Non-Christian, I pray that you would take whatever suffering you're in and realize that there really is a God out here who really is joyful beyond any of our comprehension. And his joy may look a little different down here in the present, but I promise you there's a good God here. And he punished his good son on my behalf and your behalf. And we can trust him with that in the midst of any suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us a manual on suffering. Thank you that when I open up your Bible, I'm constantly taken back at just how spot on it is. And forgive me for thinking that I had stuff figured out and being surprised by the fact that you've got it all figured out. God, for those of us suffering in this room, holidays bring out a unique suffering, suffering of loneliness, suffering of broken relationships, suffering financially. Stuff seems to get magnified. I pray that we would take these truths, these commands, and go out and live them. We do it with people around us who love us and who love your word, who can help us. God, thank you that at the end of the day, no matter what suffering I'm going through, there's no truth to the fact that you are punishing me for my sins because that is done with. Because Jesus said it's finished. And I can suffer well and suffer poorly and know that in the end it's for my good. God, I love you. I pray the people in here who don't love you yet would love you in the midst of their suffering and realize that you really are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, buddy. That's a good word, huh? Um, we're going to respond to that now, and there's some appropriate ways to respond. And